The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Morning, everyone. Um, hope that uh, is all recovered from the last weekend, and I know it was kind of a busy weekend with the refocus, but I think it was also a really powerful and blessing weekend. And if any of you were here at all, or even some of the uh, worship services, I think you really experienced God's touch and what he was doing, not in only in our church, but also um, uh, Harvest and even uh, Pastor Daniel's church. I thought it was great to have uh, them join with us, and uh, they added a, a different flavor and a different uh, uh, a vibe to our worship service, which I thought was really great. Um, we are really winding down in our, uh, I realized now it's like seven year, no, five year, <laughs> five year look into the book of Luke, uh, because I, I didn't realize we started in 2012, um, but um, we're getting to the end, and so we're really now marching through the final days of Christ's life before he will die and, uh, and then be resurrected three days later. And so the passage we want to focus on for this morning's service comes from Luke chapter 22, verses 39 to 46, and it's uh, titled, Preparing for the Cross. And it reads, And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. There appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Let's pray. Lord, help us to understand what this message is for us, to see the suffering of Christ even on the night before he would go to the cross and what happened there in that garden that day. Give us ears to understand what your word says to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, um, in the last message that I preached on Luke, right before we focus, uh, we looked at this final moment in the Last Supper when Jesus gathered his disciples in the upper room to have this final Passover meal with them before he would go and die. And what happened at the very end of that meal is this remarkable exchange between Jesus and Peter, who was basically like the leader of the disciples. In verses 31 to 32 of Luke chapter 22, it says, uh, Jesus is speaking to Peter and he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. And so, as I pointed out in that message, it's, it's, it's hard not to feel a little bit frustrated by what seems to be a pretty weak response of Christ to Peter's future failure. Um, I, I just don't think I'm praying for you is, the, is all that comforting when it comes from the lips of God himself. If, if God really wanted to prevent it, he could, couldn't he? 
I mean, if, if Jesus knows Satan is going to attack Peter, why not just spare him of that attack and rescue him? Or why doesn't he just use his divine power to make it so that Peter uh, will not deny him, but he'll rise to the occasion and, and emerge victorious in the face of that temptation? Um, but instead, he says, you are going to fail. You're going to fall flat on your face. But I have prayed for you that your faith will not collapse in the face of your failure. And as I said in that message two weeks ago, um, that's not an expression of God's weakness, that he treats us in this way. But it's actually an expression of his love. God doesn't just reprogram our brains as if we were robots, just to do his bidding, whatever he wants us to do. He doesn't automatically, magically fix everything in our life so that we never have to go through difficulties or that we never have to fail, even if God is with us. Instead, he patiently and mysteriously orchestrates things in such a way that he invites us to freely and willingly surrender ourselves to his will. That was the work that Jesus was accomplishing in Peter was even through that failure, even through that trial that you're going through, I'm at work in your life, strengthening you and helping you to grow even through that experience. And that process in its deepest essence involves our participation. He doesn't just railroad over us and just force us to do things, but in that way he lovingly invites our partnership in that work of change that he's bringing about in our lives. That's what we looked at two weeks ago. But now as we turn to the passage this morning, uh, the meal is done and he and Jesus and the disciples leave the upper room together to go to this place called the Mount of Olives, which was a hill right outside the city limits, right outside the city walls. The other Gospels tell us more specifically that they went to this place called uh, Gethsemane, which was a garden which was an olive press. And they spent some time there praying. Philip Ryken says this, Think of the darkest place you have ever been. Think of the place of anguish and pain, discouragement and despair. Think of the place where your worst fears were about to come true. Think of the place where the one thing you wanted was the one thing God had determined you could not have. Think of the place where you were trapped and there seemed to be no way out. Think of the place where you wished to God that you could be anywhere else in the universe except in the place where you were. Think of the place where things got so bad that you almost thought you were going to die. And maybe you almost did. Jesus went to that dark place. And a place even darker in the garden they called Gethsemane. In other words, in that garden on that night, Jesus went to the darkest place imaginable in his own journey of becoming a man and entering into our world. Luke tells us that this Gethsemane was a regular destination of Jesus. It seems like it was this secret garden that Jesus had where he probably spent long hours in prayer whenever he was in Jerusalem. And Jesus, in this greatest time of his distress wanted to go there that night with his disciples because he knew that his time had finally come to lay down his life. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 3 says, 
Speaking of Jesus, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And what Isaiah is basically saying is this final, horrible, violent death that Jesus was about to experience was nothing but a climax to an entire life of suffering. Born in a filthy animal pen to a carpenter and his teenage wife, Jesus would spend his first years of life in hiding, running for his life in Egypt. He grew up under this suspicion of being an illegitimate child conceived out of wedlock for as far as the neighbors could tell in Nazareth to a girl who couldn't keep her engagement vows. Jesus would grow up in poverty, never getting to experience the comforts of the wealthy. In all likelihood, Jesus' father, Joseph, died when he was still pretty young because after the birth narrative, Joseph is really never mentioned again uh, after his childhood. And so it very likely is that Joseph died when Jesus was still young. And as the eldest son of that family, Jesus would have had the responsibility of being the breadwinner for that family. And once he started his public ministry, his family thought he had gone crazy and wanted to commit him. And we can go on and on like this and bring up all the ways that Jesus suffered in his life, all the ways that Jesus had a hard life. As the prophet Isaiah said, Jesus' entire life could be summed up as a man who understood sorrow, someone who was familiar with grief. One of the strongest messages of the Bible, in fact, is that Jesus suffers with us. He entered our world of suffering. These things that he experienced, like poverty, the betrayal of friends, being misunderstood by people, being rejected. This is all stuff that you and I experience in our lives. This is the human condition. And the message is that Jesus entered that world, our world, to identify with us. That's why his name is called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus experienced everything that we experience in life so that he could identify with our pain and sympathize with everything that we go through. But now as we come to Gethsemane on this night, Jesus ventured into uncharted territory. He would experience a level of suffering that is totally unique to him. Suffering of a kind that no one has ever or will ever have to go through. Jesus and Jesus alone would go through the suffering. It's hard to know at what point in Jesus' life he came to the realization that he was sent by his Father in heaven to come and die for our sins. It's disturbing to think that some of that revelation may have happened when Jesus was still a little child, a young child. Maybe it dawned on him during one of his annual trips to Jerusalem when he and his family would come to celebrate the Passover. We know from Scripture that as a young boy, Jesus knew Scripture inside and out. He had an amazing command of the Old Testament. 
And so as he is watching these thousands of lambs being slaughtered for the Passover, and as he read Exodus, you sort of wonder as a child if it began to dawn on him that all of these lambs that are being killed were actually pointing to him and the death that he would one day have to die. Uh, like I said, we started the series in 2012. <laughs> and way back in 2000, so when I first launched the series, I actually showed you guys this painting. Uh, most of you probably were not even here <laughs> to see that. But this painting is by an artist named Holman Hunt. And he entitled it The Shadow of Death. And it be- depicts a young Jesus just entering adulthood there in his carpenter's workshop. And his, air, his eyes staring off into the distance and his arms extended to the sky. And the shadow that his arms cast in the wall behind him fall right over a wooden plank hanging on that wall, which makes it appear as if he is being crucified. And the message that Hunt wanted to communicate is clear, that from even this young age, Jesus understood that he had come to this world to die for our sins. And the Gospels affirm this truth, that from the very start of his ministry, Jesus knew his mission, that he had come to die. In fact, it's interesting, when his cousin John the Baptist baptizes him to usher the start of his public ministry, this voice breaks from heaven when he emerges out of the water. And in Luke chapter 3, verse 22, it says, And the Holy Spirit descended on him, speaking of Jesus, in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now, these were incredibly comforting words of encouragement to Jesus, but even these words from his heavenly Father actually had a darker side to it that we may not be aware of because they eerily resemble what God said to Abraham when he commanded him to sacrifice his son Isaac years earlier. In Genesis chapter 22, verse 2, then God said, Take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, And go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. It's amazing how similar the wording is, isn't it? In that story, before Isaac was sacrificed by his father Abraham, God provided a ram caught in a thicket as a substitute for his son. But now in Gethsemane, which is the exact same mountain that Abraham and Isaac stood more than almost 2,000 years earlier. They were, Jesus was on that very mountain. And there in Gethsemane, Jesus knew that there would be no ram because Jesus realized he was the ram that would have to die so that others could live. Luke describes Jesus as, quote, being in agony. That sweat was pouring down from his body like huge drops of blood falling to the ground. Mark tells us in his account, in Mark 14, verse 32 to 34, they went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. There are a couple of descriptions that are given to us in Mark's account of Jesus that are 
I think very helpful to understand his state of mind of what Jesus was going through that night. First of all, he says that he was discouraged and sad to the point of death. We're also told that not only was there a sadness that just enveloped Jesus, but he was, quote, deeply distressed and troubled. Now, that is language that is actually used to describe someone who is so in anxiety and stress that probably an accurate way to describe the heart condition of Jesus that night was one of uncontrollable terror and panic. It's like Jesus was having a panic attack and he was falling apart. He couldn't control himself. How in utter distress he was as he faced the cross. As I was thinking about this description of Jesus' state during that time, uh, I was just trying to think like, have I even come close to experiencing anything like that in my life that I could relate to that, what Jesus must have felt that night? And as I was thinking about Gethsemane, uh, my mind went to an incident that I'd actually shared with you before here at ICC, which was back in 2010 when our family vacationed in uh, Grand Haven, Michigan. Went to this beach house with Betty's side of the family. And uh, we went to the state park, the beach there, and it was really gusting very strongly. And it was almost like a storm was coming. And the waves were rough and choppy. And when we got to the park, there, there was this red flag flying on the pole. So we talked to the ranger and said, what's that red flag mean? It says, it means no swimming. And we looked in the water and there were these people swimming. And they're like, I thought you said no swimming, but there are all these people in the water. And he goes, yeah, they're swimming at their own risk, but there's no lifeguard. No one's going to help you if you get into trouble. So we were confused. We didn't know what to do, but we thought other people are in there, so it must be safe. So we just watched the little kids right by the shore. We just let them go up to their ankles. But Joy and Noel, our two older daughters, uh, ventured out into the deeper water. And after about half an hour, you know, we, you know Betty kind of looked at them and said, where's Joy and Noel? I don't see them. And I looked out there, and we couldn't see them anywhere as far as our eyes could see. So I kind of started swimming out to the deeper water where they were. And these were like three, four-foot waves that were just like, buffeting me uh, left and right. And it turned out that Joy and Noel had gotten caught in a riptide and got sucked out into the open water. And they were screaming for help. And this one boy had heard them scream. This teenage boy had heard them screaming and he swam out there. But he couldn't bring both of them back. He wasn't strong enough. So he brought Noel, our second daughter, back. And she was coughing and gasping and crying as we helped her to the shore. Then I realized a joy was still out there in the water. And she had been treading water for quite a while, and she was, every once in a while you could hear her faint screaming for help. And I remember, you know, in that moment, just like shouting, you know what had happened was, uh, just that previous week, I had torn my calf muscle playing softball with the ICC team. <laughs> and so I, I, I could barely tread water. I, I was, one leg was totally useless to me. And I knew I couldn't reach her. I wasn't strong enough, and the water was way too strong. And so I was just shouting, saying, can someone help me? My daughter is out there, and no one was responding. And I remember the exact moment when I resolved to swim out there no matter what and try to rescue her. I just said, I cannot sit here 
and watch my daughter drown. I just, I cannot. And I remember in that moment thinking very clearly, so this is how I die. <laughs> I mean, it sounds so morbid now to think it, but I, I, I literally thought this is, so this is how I die. Uh, and in that moment, I was overcome by such a deep sense of terror. It, it was like my stomach just sank to my feet. And I, I, I remember in that moment being filled with such a deep sense of sadness <laughs> that this was going to be it because I, I was just thinking crazy thoughts. I was thinking, I'm not going to sit here and watch my daughter drown right in front of me, and yet I'm probably going to drown too trying to save her because I'm not strong enough to bring her back. And so now Betty is going to lose both a daughter and a, her husband. I was thinking all these crazy thoughts. It was this weird mixture of absolute panic and terror filled with a deep sense of sadness that just overwhelmed me in that moment. Thankfully, right before I went to go get her, this group of boys came out of nowhere. <laughs> they said, we'll get her. They, they swam out there to her, and they managed to bring her safely, which we were unbelievably thankful for that they risked their own life to go and rescue her. But I was thinking about that moment in Grand Haven and how I felt out there in that choppy water. And I thought, you know, that's probably just a fraction of what Jesus must have felt that night in the garden as he was facing his death. I think one of the main reasons why Jesus was experiencing agony at this level was the utter abandonment that he experienced. You know, um, Yom Kippur is also known as the Day of Atonement. It's the holiest day in the Jewish calendar. On that day, all of Israel was required to fast and repent for their sins. And it's the only day in the entire year where the high priest would enter into what is known as the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, to offer sacrifice for the sins of Israel. And on that Yom Kippur day, the high priest would slaughter a goat to atone for the sins of Israel. But you know, there was a second goat. This one wasn't killed, at least not right away. Leviticus chapter 16, verse 20 to 22 says this. When Aaron had finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the desert in the care of a man appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a solitary place, and the man shall release it in the desert. So the high priest puts his hand on this goat and symbolically transfers all the people's sins onto the singular animal. And then it is led out into the desert where it's abandoned. The Talmud tells us that the Jews used to tie a red ribbon on the horns of this goat so that even from a distance, people would know which goat that was. And no one would touch this goat. No one would care for this goat. It would die wandering in the desert alone, never to be touched again. And this scapegoat in the Old Testament represented the total 
abandonment that Jesus would have to experience when he bore the sins of the world. The picture that the gospel gives us as we march closer and closer to his death is of a man that is now being isolated and left utterly alone. Everyone seems to clear away from him, and he is now utterly abandoned. The religious leaders condemned him as a fraud. The people he had served tirelessly and lovingly for years turned their back on him, would even within 24 hours shall crucify him. Even his own disciples that he had poured his life into for these past three years would abandon him in his greatest moment of need. There at Gethsemane, he repeatedly asked them, my soul is in distress. I need you now if ever I needed you. Pray with me. Help me. Be with me. And they kept falling asleep on him. This is the picture of a man who is utterly alone, who has no one to help him, no one to support him. He is the scapegoat. He is the one that will die in the wilderness by himself, rejected by everyone. I want to say this, though. Jesus was not the only guy who was ever nailed on a Roman cross. And I, I want to say this. It, it would actually be a more inspiring story, I think, if the Gospels recorded that that night in Gethsemane, the night before his execution, that Jesus faced it without a hint of fear, like the warrior, mighty warrior from God, unwavering, in the face of his death. But the truth is, at Gethsemane, Jesus basically falls apart. He is terrified, and he's not hiding it. He is trembling. He is collapsed in sorrow. He is a sobbing mess. In fact, you could probably argue that others in history had faced their own crucifixion with more composure than Jesus did, all right? He doesn't exactly stand up to us as a model of courage that, you know, died a better death than anyone had ever done in history. But I also want to say this. Jesus struggled so much in Gethsemane that night because for him the cross represented more than physical torture. There is no doubt that as a human being, the anticipation of that physical pain of crucifixion was part of the agony. But that fear of the pain of the cross was nothing compared to what Jesus really dreaded that he was about to face. Something that no one else would have to face in life. Having lived a sinless life, he would now bear the guilt of the sin of the world on himself. And as a result of that guilt, he was going to have to face the unrelenting full wrath of a holy God poured out against him without mercy, without relief. And Jesus had no idea what that was going to be like, but he was terrified of it. He was terrified of it. John MacArthur says this, Christ's sorrow in facing death as the sin bearer is beyond comprehension. It defies description and surpasses understanding because what Jesus endured is absolutely unique 
and without any parallel in human experience. Nobody knows what Jesus went through anticipating that pain, that suffering. Donald McLeod writes, It is clear from all the accounts that Jesus' experience of turmoil and anguish was both real and profound. He faced the will of God as raw holiness, and it terrified him. The full implications of being the servant and the ransom dawned on him only gradually as he reflected on the scriptures, observed sin at work, and communed with his father. In Gethsemane, the whole terrible truth strikes home. The hour of reckoning has come. Now is the last moment to escape. Beyond it, there can be no turning back. When Moses saw the glory of God on Mount Sinai, so terrifying was the sight that he trembled with fear. But that was God in covenant, God in grace. What Christ saw in Gethsemane was God with the sword raised. The sight was unbearable. In a few short hours, he, the last Adam, would stand before that God answering for the sin of the world, indeed identified with the sin of the world. He became, as Luther said, quote, the greatest sinner that ever was. The wonder of the love of Christ for his people is not that for their sake he faced death without fear, but that for their sake he faced it terrified, terrified by what he knew and terrified by what he did not know. He took damnation lovingly. It is this prospect of bearing the sins of the world that caused Jesus to pray as it's recorded in verses 41 to 42. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. If you remember, at the start of his ministry, he was confronted by Satan in the wilderness. And the main tact that Satan used was to try to tell Jesus, you can have the glory without the cross. You don't need that suffering. You don't need to go to the cross. And it seems like that's the primary way that Satan was constantly harassing Jesus. Because later on, he would come through his disciple, Peter, and once again try to convince him, don't go to the cross. Don't go to the cross. And now on this night before his crucifixion, I think the spiritual attack was more intense than it had ever been in Christ's life. I think Satan came roaring in his rage for one final attempt to get Jesus not to go to the cross. And he struggled. He began to buckle. And so he says to his father, is there any other way? Is there any other way than this? Do I have to do this? Father, if there is any other option, would you give it to me? Because the thought of this is more than I can bear. I can't do this, God. I don't think I can do this. And yet, to the very end, Christ would prove to be the faithful son when he said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Let me just close with this thought. There's a real danger here as we listen to this message and think about Gethsemane that we think that the, the goal of this message is to elicit sympathy for Jesus, you know, to pity him. And that what we ought to come out of this service with is this feeling of poor Jesus. Look at all that he suffered. I don't think that's the purpose, though. 
of this message of Gethsemane. The message of Gethsemane, the message of Calvary, in fact, is not let's pity Jesus. It is that like David facing Goliath, Jesus became our champion. And he took the punishment that we deserved so that we would never have to experience that for ourselves. In other words, because Jesus was faithful to the end and bore our guilt, we can know God's unconditional love and forgiveness for our sins. In other words, because Jesus suffered and was abandoned, we can be secure in the unconditional covenant love of God who promises he will never leave us or forsake us. That's what it says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 to 6. He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? What this message of Gethsemane is this. Jesus was abandoned so that even when you fail, even when you go back on your promises to God and you fall back into sin, even when you go through painful trials, the message of the gospel is that you are never alone. God never abandons you. It is not punishment if you are in Christ. It is always out of love. Everything that you go through in this life because Christ took the punishment on himself so that you would never have to bear the weight of that suffering. That's why Paul says in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 31 to 39, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all, day, all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. As we march closer to Good Friday and Easter and get ready to celebrate that holiday, um, I think these, this extended season of reflection on what Christ went through for us is so important to the growing of our faith. And, um, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I think the sad story of the church is that often... Um, we're not receiving the full benefits of everything Christ has done for us. And I, I think the truth is um, we, we doubt the full extent of God's promise toward us. And so we struggle with how much does God really love me? And we, we feel like that love is conditional based on our performance of what we do for Him. And, 
Um, I think when we go through dry seasons and difficulties and struggles, it's always that sense that has God abandoned me and has he left me? And what we find in the story of the gospel is that Christ experienced everything, our greatest fears, our deepest worries, our greatest insecurities. And he took all of that on himself so that we don't have to be insecure in God's love for us. But we can boldly claim his promises for us because of what Christ has done. So could I just invite you to take a bit of time of prayer right now before God? And whatever it is that is the hang-up for you to be able to receive God of this feeling that I just feel like God is just looking down at me angrily all the time, wanting to yell at me or punish me or condemn me, and I never feel like I'm living a good enough life for Him, and I always feel like I'm failing in. Um, I don't know, I just lately, I don't feel like He's near me. And Can I just challenge you that Maybe that's just a stubborn lack of faith in your own heart that not realizing everything that Christ has done for you. All of those worst fears were met by Christ in Gethsemane and on the cross. He was the one that was abandoned. He was the one that bore the brunt of all of the wrath of God so that we can know his forgiveness, so that we can know his unconditional love, so that we can hear those words through the Spirit that says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Would you just pray for a moment that that knowledge that's trapped in your head would work its way down into your heart. and There could be a resounding testimony that comes from your own life that says, this is God's love for me. That isn't dependent on how good a life I live or well I, how well I perform for Him, but simply because I claim what Christ offers to me freely through his cross, through his body broken for me. We just pray that for a few minutes as our worship team comes to lead us in a time of response. Let's just pray that before the Lord.